A man fell into a pit. He couldn't get out and he cried out for help. And an optimist came along and the optimist said, hmm, it's not as bad as it might be. And then a pessimist came along and he said, it's going to get a lot worse. And then a psychologist came along and the psychologist said, well, you know, your mother and your father have got a lot to answer for here as to why you are in this pit. And then a mathematician came along, and the mathematician did all the calculations as to how the man fell in, the terminal velocity he had, and actually what was needed to get him out. My favourite, of course, is the geologist, because he looked at the strata on the sides of the pit, and he said, oh, look at that, there's some fossils there. A Pharisee came along and saw the man in the pit, and the Pharisee said, you know, only bad people fall into pits. And then even an evangelical came along and said, you should be saved from that pit. Finally, Jesus came along, saw the man in the pit, reached down with his hand and pulled him out. It's only Jesus, isn't it? It's only Jesus who has the ability to save. And here we have a nation and a king that has fallen into a pit. Pretty dreadful pit at that. The country had divided. Those of you who know your, your history will know that the, the, the country divided into the north, which was the kingdom of Israel, and the south, which was the kingdom of Judah. Judah was just two tribes, Judah and Dan. Israel was in the north. And this wasn't a peaceful time at all for the nation. King Joash had to face uh, opposition on every side. Margaret read that they were oppressed, an oppressed people. From the north and to the east was the nation of Aram, or the Syrians. They had, been, uh, had come from the, the son of Noah. And they were a people who had um, been oppressive, who had invaded, who had attacked the Israelite people. And then at other times they'd been peaceful and they'd had an alliance and they'd agreed to fight together. But there was an element of uncertainty there for Israel as to what that relationship really was. And then to the south and to the east there was Moab. When the Hebrew people had left Israel and after 40 years in the desert they had tried to enter into the promised land, Moab had blocked them. Moab, the descendants of Lot were related to the Israelite people. But even so, they took the opportunity to attack and raid Israel whenever they could, normally in the springtime when it was a bit easier to travel. An arrogant, a proud people. Constant friction then around the border. Way up to the north, it's not shown on that map, but you've got the Assyrians, a massive power force in the country, in the, in the region, in what is now modern-day Iraq. And very shortly, they are going to make their presence known to Israel. And they're going to invade, and they're going to cart everybody off into exile. And if that wasn't enough for King Joash to deal with, there were his own people to the south, Judah. And we read in the passage that King Amaziah waged war against Israel. And poor old Israel, 
were not doing very well in terms of their resources. What did they have available to them to help? Well, earlier in chapter 13, we find out that they had just 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 men. King Jehoash, or Joash, was in a pit, and he couldn't get out of it. He was in a pit wondering what to do. Now, I'm going to tackle this this morning by dividing the passage into four sections. That They will just follow one after the other after the other. Is this just another king? Is this just another promise? Is this just another burial? Is this just another God? Well, let's look at the king himself. Just another king. There, have been tw- there were going to be 20 kings altogether in the nation of Israel, spread over about 200 years. The Bible records all of them as being pretty dreadful. It hardly has a good word to say about any of them. Very few positive comments. A catalogue of disasters, civil war, unrest, murder within the royal family. And worst of all, idolatry, false worship. Our passage begins in verse 10 and it says, In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, became king of Israel in Samaria and he reigned for 16 years. If like me you've read that or heard that, you're probably in your mind, you're already skipping on to the next bit. I mean, this sounds really dry, tiresome. There's nothing very exciting in this. It's dry as dust. To be honest, we're not expecting this passage, those verses, to to jump off the page and excite us and enthuse us and, and speak to us. We think, oh, what's coming later is going to be far more exciting. But if we do that, if we do that, we're missing out. Because God's got something to say to us, even through what appear to be the driest of passages. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. Does it say that some verses of Scripture are effective for us? For teaching and rebuking and correcting and training? It doesn't say that some are. It says that all of it, every jot and tittle, is useful to us. So we have to believe, when we apply ourselves to reading God's Word, we have to believe that every sentence in there, has got, God's got something to say to us through that. Let's not skip over it to a passage which we think is more juicy. And then the next verse. Wow. We've read this a few times. It gets repeated about 17 times in 2 Kings. And it says it about the king himself. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Well, this... Jeroboam must have been some character if he was going to be repeated time and time and time again as a criticism of the kings of Israel. So what was so bad about Jeroboam? He ignored God's promises to him that God himself would protect them, would protect the nation. He depended and trusted in his own strength rather than in God. He fired all the Levite priests. He got rid of them and set up his own. And then instead of the people going down to worship at the temple of Jerusalem, he set up 
his own shrines in two different places and said to the people, you go here, you go there. And he built golden calves in each of them. And the people bowed down and worshipped the golden calves. Jeroboam was a king who was syncretistic. You know, he took on board all the belief practices of the nations around that had been there. And he said, we'll have a bit of that, we'll have a bit of this. And we'll mix it all up. No wonder God was upset. And what a wicked, wicked, wicked influence he was to have on the generation to follow and the generation after that and the generation after that. For 200 years, that negative influence carries on. The kings continued in the sins of Jeroboam. What a terrible criticism. What a terrible condemnation of the nation following, pursuing the sins of of the fathers. What a key role then for any leader. What a key role for a parent. Don't know if care for the family in the package that they gave you on, on parenting mentions the role that parents have. We as adults have in influencing the generations to come. There's a well-known example of the family of Jonathan Edwards. Not the triple jumper, Olympic triple jumper, but Jonathan Edwards the revivalist and preacher in the 1800s in the United States. His father was a minister. His mother was the daughter of a minister. And they've researched his family, a godly family. And what did they discover? They discovered that the contribution that family made to American society up until about uh, 1950, I guess, was 14 college presidents, 100 college professors, 100 lawyers, 30 judges, 60 doctors, and more than 100 ministers and missionaries. Why? Because of the godly influence that Jonathan Edwards' parents had on him and their their children had on their children and so on and so forth. An influence for good, a righteous influence. So different, so contrasting to Jeroboam. So the question this morning, one of the questions for us this morning is, what influence are you going to have on the generation that follows. Maybe your children or your nieces or nephews, your cousins. What influence are you going to have upon them? What legacy are you going to leave them? Will they see your walk with God? Will they see it and say, I want to buy into that. I want some of that. I want to own it for myself. Or are they going to turn away from it? Are you going to inspire them or are you going to put them off? Are they going to want to copy it or are they going to discard it? That is a challenge for all of us, the influence we will have on our children. King Joash reigned for just 16 years. What influence did he have? Well, it would seem as though his influence was negative because the king after him followed in the same way. 16 years, summed up in just four verses. Behind where our family live in Chumadiston, there's a graveyard. And I took the, the time last week to just look around the graveyard and look at the gravestones, just to see what was recorded about the lives of the people who had died and were buried there. Maybe because stone is quite hard to work in, maybe it's expensive to carve details, but you know, only one person I saw had more than three words about them. Less than a tweet. 
You know? Good father, caring mother. That was the sum total of what, of what was said about their lives. You know, that's a sobering thought. Because how long is somebody going to remember me for? How long is somebody going to remember you for? Hopefully your children, hopefully the grandchildren if you have them. Maybe the great-grandchildren will remember you, but after that, who's going to remember you? Who's going to remember the influence you had? Which makes it so much more important that you make the time that you have now count. Count. Make your lives count. People this week have been trying to get into the news to say, I want to make my life count. And an Australian billionaire with more money than sense wants to build another Titanic. Somebody a little bit closer to home, a, a court judge, high court judge called Paul Coleridge, set up what's called the Marriage Foundation because he believes in marriage and he wants to see marriage promoted and supported. And there'll be other people this week who want to make their lives count because they've told somebody about Jesus. They've told somebody about Jesus, somebody who can reach down into that pit and save, and save completely. So was Joash just another king? Well, in many senses, he was just like another king. But as we're going to read, a king who had an amazing opportunity. Let's look at the promise that was made to him. You know, the author has kept the best bit of the story to last. He's given us an overview, but now a little bit of detail about the king and one story with Elisha. Up until this point, it seems as though the king had been completely indifferent to spiritual matters. He hadn't oppressed Elisha and the prophets, but he hadn't supported them and obeyed them either. But now with his country in turmoil, now with the country threatened, he thinks, I've got to do something about that. I've got to see somebody who can help me. And Elisha, who's been off the pages of Scripture for about 45 years, there's been silence from him. Now he reappears on his deathbed. And the king's come to see him. And he finds the energy and the zeal because he thinks, this is an amazing opportunity God is giving me to speak into the life of this king and maybe turn this nation around. Certainly Joash is showing respect to the king and we see him weeping. This is genuine. The king is genuinely touched and moved by what he's seen. And maybe by what he's heard. But he knows that Elisha's had a key role in the life of the nation. Elisha has been like a shield to the the, the people for all this time, protecting the nation against Ammon and against Moab and against the Assyrians. And now the king's there, looking for help, looking for wise words. And maybe Elisha has seen just those embryonic flickers of faith in the king. I'm going to make the most of this. This is a chance to speak powerfully into the king's life. Where do desperate people go during desperate times? The king found out Elisha. Where are you going to go when those desperate times come? Because they will come. Who will you go to? Who will you call upon? And just flip the coin round. The other way, what if somebody comes to you who has those glimmers of faith, but they know you to be a a godly person and they come to see you for help? Are you prepared? Are you ready? Do you know what you're going to say to them? What counsel you will give? 
What's Elisha trying to do in this part of the story? Elisha's so desperate here to bring faith to birth in the life of the king. And Joash is told to open a window to the east and to fire an arrow out of that window. Everything here is really symbolic. Why east? Because that's where the the direction the enemy was coming from. Elisha puts his hands on the bow. You can almost feel him drawing back the bow with the king to say, look, you're not on your own in this. God is with you in this. And out flies the arrow. Victory isn't going to be through your strength. Victory isn't going to be through your few number of chariots and men. Victory is going to come through the king, the Lord God. Psalm 20 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. How appropriate this would have been for Joash. But we trust in the name of our, the Lord our God. One of David's psalms. Maybe Elisha said that to him. And at least the king is obedient. At least at this point in time, he does what he's told to do. And the arrow flies out. And Elisha says to him, Great! Absolutely marvellous! The Lord is going to give you victory. The Lord is going to give you victory. Amen! What's God trying to do in all of this? Here's a desperate situation and and God's there in the most desperate of times wanting to speak into the king's life, wanting to give words of comfort, wanting to say, look, this is a marvellous opportunity to remove completely that oppression upon you. God wants to do that for him. He's promising victory over the Arameans. He's promising victory. What a promise. What a promise. You'd have thought the king would be overjoyed by this. You'd thought he'd embrace it completely. I want more of this. And then we see Elijah getting angry. Why? Because Elijah wants so much more for the king. He believes that God wants something bigger and better for the king and for the nation. The king only fires off three arrows. There was a whole cluster of arrows available to him and he just fired off just three. What a lack of faith. What a lack of zeal. What a lack of commitment. What a half-hearted king. Some of the commentators have said this passage just relates to our prayer lives. You know, we don't embrace prayer as we should. There's an opportunity here that's been missed. These could be the words, couldn't they, of Joash. I stopped firing the arrows because I didn't want to be presumptuous and ask for too much. And maybe we stop praying for the same reason. I stopped firing arrows because I'm not very good at archery. I stopped firing arrows or praying because I needed more help. I stopped praying because I thought three was plenty. I stopped praying because I didn't think it would do any good. I stopped praying because I wasn't in a praying mood. I just didn't feel like it. I stopped praying because I didn't want to get overexcited. The king didn't want to get overexcited. As a result of the king's lack of faith, as a result of the king's half-heartedness, the whole nation, sadly was going to suffer. I surprised my wife now, because I'm going to quote from Beth Moore, and this is what Beth Moore has to say, not about this passage, but about the cycle of unbelief in our lives. She says, we believe little because we see little. 
And we see little because we believe little. You know, that's really telling, isn't it, in our lives. We don't see God move much because we're not expecting much. We don't expect much because we don't really, in our hearts, believe God can come through. But here's a promise from God. I will deliver you. You know, there are real dangers about half-heartedness and being lukewarm in our faith. (coughs) Joash, instead of becoming a complete victor, is a three-victories man. And there are evils and oppressions in his life that he never has victory over. And maybe this morning you're one of those people as well that doesn't have complete victory because you haven't grasped fully the promises that God has for you. Because we're half-hearted. And Revelation 3 is really quite damning of the church that is lukewarm and half-hearted. God is going to spit them out. John Piper says this about half-hearted Christians. He says, they know enough to feel guilty. They don't go far enough with Christ to be happy. And we don't experience the full joy that God has for us because we're living half-heartedly. And C.S. Lewis says this, a little dated, but it's still true. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seaside. We, as Christians, are far too easily pleased. Are we this morning missing out on the full promises of God? Because we've only fired three arrows ourselves. Are we failing to see complete victory? Next I want to look at this really amazing section, just another burial. This has got to be one of the strangest sections and passages in the whole of the Old Testament. Here's Elijah, who's been buried, put in a tomb. And the people are burying a friend, a colleague. And just as they're about to put him in the tomb, they see in the distance a cloud being raised by these Moabites who are attacking. It must be springtime, they're attacking again. And they think, we don't want to be around when these Moabites come. So they literally throw the body into the tomb and leg it. And what happens? The body touches the bones of Elisha and the body comes to life. Can you imagine that man coming to, hey, where's everybody gone? What am I doing here? Who are these? Oh, it's the Moabites coming this way. What's he going to say to them? Scripture's silent on it. But it's an amazing passage. We could just leave it at that. But God's got something more there to say to us. And he's saying more to Joash and the kingdom of Israel at this time. Isn't he saying something about just how creative he is? Isn't he saying just how remarkable he is to bring life from dead bones? Here's a nation that is spiritually dead that God wants to bring new life to to revive, to bring back into a relationship with him. There's more symbolism here. God wants to do that with every passage that we read. The bits which we find dry as dust, like those history lessons from school. God wants to bring those alive and speak into our hearts with them. God is the God of the living, not of the dead. 
God wants to lift us out of the grave. And you know, God is still doing that. I read this testimony this week about a 12-year-old girl called Brooke Brukowski. This is what she wrote at 12 years old. I'll tell others about Christ. I'll be one of those people who goes somewhere with a mission, an awesome plan, a world-changing plan, and nothing will hold me back. I'll set an example for others. I will pray for direction. I will give others the joy I have, and God will give me more joy. I will do everything God tells me to do. I will follow the footsteps of God. I will do my best. A 12-year-old girl in the United States. And what does she do? When she's babysitting, she saves her money. She buys Bibles because she wants to give those Bibles to friends. She sets up a prayer group in her high school. And then, just two years after writing this, tragically, she's killed in a car accident. One and a half thousand people turn up at her funeral because she's spoken into their lives. And there's a gospel message given, an altar call made, and 200 give their lives to the Lord that day. And each of them receive a Bible, a Bible that she had bought herself and kept in a garage. They received a Bible from her. Who says that God can't bring life out of old bones. What an amazing testimony. That was one girl in the United States, 200 lives saved. What could God do amongst us? There's 200 of us. How many lives could we touch while we're still living? So is this just another God that Joash is dealing with? Here he is, the king of the nation, who's brought on board every belief practice of of his day into his nation. There were loads of gods that he could choose from. But God has spoken into his life in a powerful and dramatic way with a promise of deliverance. How does God reveal himself? Well, at the end of this passage we've been reading, It's just beautiful how God brings it all together. And we find that he's a God of graciousness. A God of mercy. Israel's not going to be overrun by the Arameans. Because God delights to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. Even though those people were effectively turning their back on him. He delights to show grace. He delights to show mercy. There's real irony there isn't there? God. God doesn't need these people. And yet he chases after them. And the people, they need God, but they're not chasing after him. But God is gracious and he speaks to them nevertheless. And God is a God of compassion. He's still a God of compassion today, wanting to give the people space to repent. And he's a God who remembers. What does he say? He says, I remember my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembers his covenant and he's made promises to us and he wants to keep them. And finally, God is a God of truth. Three arrows, three victories. What happens? Joash only has three victories. That's all he get, but gets. But God's true to his word. The promise of Elisha, the God through Elisha, is held.
Yes, just another king. But what an amazing promise. Just another burial, yes, in some ways, but God wants to bring life and new life because God is the living God of the living and not of the dead. And what an amazing God we serve. I want to take you finally to Senegal. I want to take you to Senegal to a village that's about three miles off the beaten track. And some friends of ours were ministering into that village, a group called the Serer people. The, the wife was a doctor and served medically and ministered to the team there, the, the, the villagers there, Muslims. But they showed the love of God and they declared the love of God. They preached the love of God. And when they offered to, to speak to the people and to pray to the people and offer uh, a chance to be prayed for, they said, those amulets you're wearing on your arm or around your neck or around your waist or around your ankle, you've got to cut those. You've got to sever your ties with the past. You can't be half in this world and half in, in God's world. You've got to cut those completely. And when people did cut those amulets off, they would pray for them in Jesus' name because they wanted commitment, wholeheartedness, not half-heartedness, not lukewarmness. They wanted wholeheartedness for Jesus. And the next slide shows a baptismal service we were privileged to see where I think something like 20 people were baptised that day. And that was the third set of baptisms they had had in the space of about a year in that village because God was at work. And people declared their commitment to the Lord. Nothing half-hearted there. Stepping out of a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light with a God who honours his promises, who keeps his promises, with a God who's full of grace and compassion and of truth. Because God wants that of us this morning. God wants not half-heartedness, not lukewarmness, but he wants wholehearted commitment. Something that King Joash couldn't give. But Jesus himself says this to us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, not a part. With all your soul, not a part. And with all your mind, not a part. This is the first and greatest commandment. May God give us strength today to do that. Let us pray.